Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we have the promised interview for you. I, I told you we were going to try to get one done before Christmas, and it was a doozy. Um, I recently ran across an article because I follow the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, and they had this really cool article called Behind the One-Way Mirror, A Deep Dive into the Technology of Corporate Surveillance. And I, I, I had to set it aside because it's actually a really long article. Uh, but it's a really good article. And as soon as I read it, I'm like, okay, this is, this is it. I got I haven't talked to one of the EFF folks for a while. Uh, put in my request and luckily was able to corner Bennett Cyphers, who appears on the byline. Uh, and as we will find out in the interview, there were several others behind the scenes contributing as well. But uh, I was able to get Bennett, and I'm really happy to do that. And we had a really, really long, interesting talk. Uh, so this will definitely be a two-parter. And even for a two-parter, it's going to be pretty long. So... Uh, before we get into it though, uh, this will get a little technical and don't let that put you off what, you know, you don't really need to fully understand, you know, all the little details we're talking about, but what I want you to kind of pull from this is the, the links, the sheer links that all these companies have gone to, to try to identify us and track us. And, and so the, in this first in this first part of the interview, we're going to spend the entire time just talking about all the myriad ways in which we are identified, both on the web, as we use our mobile phones, as we, and even as we walk around in, in the physical world, because uh, it's gotten that bad. I mean, at this point, they want to know everything about us, and, and it's not enough just to, you know, track your cookies on the web anymore. It's gotten way, way beyond that. And it's, so we're going to dedicate this first part just to uncovering all the different ways that, that these companies try to, to put an identifier on us. And it might not be our name, but in a lot of cases, it's sufficient for them just to know that I saw this guy before. Uh, and when he was here last time, this is when he was here. This is how long he stayed. This is what he bought. And he's now he's back. Uh, and in a lot of these cases, it's not just, unfortunately, it's not just the one website you go to. It's many websites because the way these tracking networks work is it's not just, it's not a first party thing. It's not, it's not the website you're going to that's, that's tracking you though. They're, they probably are too. Um, but it's the third party stuff that really gets crazy because they're tracking you across multiple, multiple websites. And in a lot of cases, they're even tracking you in the real world as well. So anyway, uh, we're going to find out all about this from Bennett Cyphers and I don't want to take away anything more from the interview. So, uh, don't let the, don't let the technical stuff get you down. Just kind of, but realize just how determined these guys are to track us in our everyday lives. So let's get to the interview with Bennett Cyphers. Bennett is a staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He works on policy, legislation, and the tracker blocking browser extension that I love to recommend, Privacy Badger. Welcome to the show, Bennett. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So uh, you have written, uh, recently written an article that was really good. It was re really long, and I'll definitely put it in the show notes, and we'll re refer to it several times. But um, you kind of go through it, uh, in really good, painstaking detail about all how we're tracked and, and, and how all that tracking information is used. And we're going to go through that today. I'm sure this is going to be a two-parter because we got a lot to get through. <laughs> um, but it's really fascinating, and I'm so glad to have in the show that we can go through this. In the article, you, you make this metaphor of a hall of one-way mirrors. Let's start with that. So explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so um, this is so. first of all, this was uh, because of the way our CRM works or our, our, our system works. You can only have one author on white papers, but this mm. was really a big collaborative effort from a bunch of different people at EFF. And so Jenny Gebhardt was the main co-author, and then we worked with lawyers and designers and other technologists uh, to put this all together. But yeah, so at, at the start of this, we're... we're we wanted this to be like a kind of, it, it says a deep dive, but it's, we wanted this to bridge the gap between like broad and deep technical explainers of which there are a lot on different parts mm -hmm. of the ecosystem and just sort of like surface level bloggy, regular person friendly explainers of which there are also a lot, but they tend to be kind of like oversimplify things right. and sometimes give people the wrong impressions. And so we, we wanted to start with a metaphor like something that gets across this idea of just like the way that when you're going through your life using your devices, you see one thing, but you're really missing a lot of what's happening in the background. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And so this, this felt kind of appropriate because like, I don't know, it's you, you see the, you see the glass, you see your, 
the reflections in the glass. You might have an idea that there's something behind the glass, but you really have no way of knowing. Average people have no way of figuring out what's going on behind the glass in their smartphone or their laptop and seeing where all their data is going. Yeah, actually, I didn't really thought about it, but that you're right that you're actually, in a way, in a lot of these cases, you are looking at glass, right? You're looking at a monitor. You're looking at mm -hmm. your... That, that was clever. I didn't pick up on that. I'm sure this took a lot of effort because this is a really thorough, thorough article. So uh, before we dig in some of those details, though, uh, let's... I want to set the stage for um, why we should be caring. So, you know, because a lot of people I still <laughs> think have this, well, maybe it's become a myth now, but there's definitely the, the idea that a lot of people out there are like, ah, I don't care. I've got nothing to hide. I'm boring. I, mm -hmm. Let them track me. If, if that makes these things cheaper or whatever, you know, I'm fine with that. But hopefully by the end of this, people will have a different idea of that. So, you know, so what are what are some of the like the real world implications of all this tracking and the creations of these profiles? Like why why really should we care about this? Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's sort of two different angles. The first thing is like real harm to real specific people. And that that comes as a result of just like crazy sensitive data on location, on really personal habits, demographics, that kind of a thing being just spread across the ecosystem such that if you are if there's anyone in the world and any piece of information about yourself that you don't want anyone else in the world to know, <laughs> it behooves you to be concerned about these third-party trackers because any specific piece of information is unlikely to hurt you if, if some random company knows it. But like all specific pieces of information about you aggregated over all time and shared with dozens and dozens of different companies who then make it available to pretty much anyone at the end of the day who might want it, the odds that someone out there is going to get some kind of sensitive information about you that you don't want them to have grows, grows a lot. And that, I mean, so obviously like some people, it's, it's true that some people might live their lives in such a way that it really doesn't matter. Like maybe they really are open books and like there is no information that can hurt them. But a lot of people, I'd say probably most people have secrets and yeah. want to have secrets or have people that they want to avoid and that the result of this sort of haphazard and unaccountable data sharing ecosystem that exists is that those people can be put in real danger. And that's we've we've seen that in a pretty concrete way with the, the lawsuit against AT&T that EFF is filing right now. Mm -hmm. This is the class action suit against against AT&T for their role in sharing specific location data about specific people with a data aggregator who then shared it with another data aggregator who then shared it with bounty hunters and made it so that an undercover reporter could just go and pay $300 and see the exact location of a particular phone at a particular time. Right. Yeah. There are millions of people in America and around the world for whom that would be, that could literally lead to uh, real physical harm. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's like one side of it is the, <laughs> the specific bad thing that could happen. And there's also like identity theft and um, right. less less sinister things that are made much more um, likely by this ecosystem. But on the other side is sort of the societal effects. And I think this is what should be compelling to everyone, even the ones who think that they are above the risk of danger. Mm -hmm. And this is just like there, there are companies that are collecting demographic, what they call psychographic information about and behavioral information about literally pretty much everyone in the country and a vast majority of people in the world. And that gives them a really privileged view into the way the world works. And that lets them, using that sort of information differential, they can attempt to manipulate people through targeted ads, through targeted political ads, through misinformative ads that they, mm -hmm. because of targeting, they know won't fall into, won't be shown right, to yeah. like, regulators or the kind of people who would stop them. Mm -hmm. It gives incumbent powers, corporate powers or would be monopolists the ability to spot changes in the market and identify competitors before right, yeah. government regulators can. These these companies have become essentially uh, like spy spy networks. Like they're they're the equivalent they have the same amounts of information that like nations in the past would have using using spy networks and obviously they don't have the same goals corporations for the most part pretty much just want to keep making money but 
a lot of times that comes at the expense of the rest of us and it comes at the expense of transparency and accountability on behalf of society. Yeah, and that's uh, Bruce Schneier brings that up a lot when he talks about uh, data gathering. It, it, it's the power imbalance that it that it brings, mm-hmm. and it's uh, especially when the when that data falls into the hands of somebody who has a lot more authority over you. And, and we're not going to really talk about that too much here, but it, you know, when the same data we're going to talk, you know, because we're going to be focused in, in this article a lot about corporations, but when that same data can then be used by law enforcement or you know, I guess totally. the, the yeah. particular yeah. one, you know, that, you know, they can arrest you. You can't really arrest them. Right. So you right. Know, the, the power imbalance is already there and just magnified by the fact that they may know a lot more about you. Uh, the right. other thing that I, that I thought was interesting about this is that there's the whole is greater than some of the parts. I mean, when you start putting some of this data together for a little bit from here, a little bit from there, uh, and you put it together, this profile, you can start then extrapolating on some of that. And they do, right? I mean, they're taking this data. It's not just that they have these, you know, 10 or probably thousands of data points on you. They can take all that data and then they can actually predict things about you that, you know, and I've seen, I've read articles, cases where they found out things about people that, that they didn't know themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's really powerful. It's really, yeah, exactly. And the other thing I always bring up and I would like with my class and I, when I'm talking about this, that, that is that unlike you know, stuff like, you know, somebody steals your stuff or, or takes something from you. If, if it's data about you, it, it can't be taken back. I mean, you can't expunge memories. <laughs> You're totally, right. totally. You know, yeah. so once it's gone, it's gone. I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no fixing it. There's, there's no, mm-hmm. I could pay you back for that, or I can get another one that it, when it, we talk about private information, it's a very different beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The genie does not right. go back in the bottle. <laughs> And, and it doesn't stay with the person who stole it either. It's, it, it can go anywhere after that. Right. Yeah. That's one of the thing. one of the things that we're kind of trying to push back in. This is a little off topic, but, um, there's, there's this sort of popular idea nowadays of like treating data as property mm-hmm. and using that as sort of a legal framework to give people more control over their information and that kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And it's attractive for a number of reasons. I mean, like, I think people are realizing that companies are making money off of them for free and they're not getting anything out of it except these services that end up making them unhappy in the long run. <laughs> and it's it's attractive for people to say like, hey, like I should own that data. I should have a right to profit off of it just like you are. Mm-hmm. And that's true. But treating it as property and as something that you can sell, we think is is really the wrong approach in the long run. Because like if you sell someone something or something. Yeah, exactly. If someone steals something from you, you can go and get it back. If someone steals your data, you cannot get it back. Right. And most individual data points are almost worthless. Like they are, they're really, it's not until a company has thousands of data points about one person and thousands of data points about each one of millions of people that in aggregate, it becomes valuable and meaningful. And so that power imbalance is still there. And we think that treating it as property is just going to create the wrong kinds of incentives for people to give up really sensitive information that has potential for great harm for really sort of just a pittance of, of benefit. Yeah. Pennies on the data point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the calculations I did on the recent, uh, recent podcast was the, was that PayPal just bought honey and honey was, is that is a little nifty little plugin you put in your browser that if you're shopping on a shopping page, it'll say, Hey, this is cheaper somewhere else. Or uh, yeah. this coupon code, I remember you know, this. You know, yeah, which is yeah. you know, obviously very beneficial and it could actually really save you money, but PayPal just bought them for like $4 uh-huh. billion. And if you did the math, there's like, I think there was like 17 million, you know, unique monthly users or something. And it was like, ended up being like 250 bucks a person, or 350 bucks a person. It was crazy. You know, you wow. Know. Yeah. <laughs> and by comparison, yeah. the WhatsApp purchase was like a paltry, like 35 bucks a person or something like, that, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. Okay. So the article is focused on, you say third party, uh, third party data collection, third party, um, tracking. So let's, let's get that out of the way. What is the, what is the difference? What do we mean by first party versus third party? Sure. So First party data collection is, I think, what most people think of most of the time. That's like when you go to a website, that website collects your information. Or you use a a product, like you use a Google Home, and Google collects your information. This is like more easy to understand. It's a lot of people are upset about this kind of information or this kind of collection and tracking, and rightfully so. But for the most part, at least it's somewhat transparent. Mm -hmm. Like you know who you're dealing with. You have an idea of what they've done in the past. You like you feel like you have a relationship with this right. company. 
Third party data collection is when information is collected by it's like in the in the the, the sort of technical uh, interactive terms. You are the second party. The company you're interacting with is the first party, and then anyone else is a third party. Mm-hmm. So this is like um, you go to a website and you go to uh, I don't know NewYorkTimes.com, and there are a whole bunch of tracking pixels and advertisers on that page that collect information about your visit to that page that are not the New York Times and you don't intend to interact with them. And so this this happens on the web, this happens in mobile apps. When you open up an app, there's a bunch of ads that are served and uh, data goes to third parties. And this also happens in the real world where you might be walking around and come into view of a camera mm-hmm. that does facial recognition or driving around and a different camera snaps a picture of your driver's license, license or of your plate, yeah. uh, your license plate, right, right. And so it's just any situation where you don't know that the data is being collected about you and you don't know where it's going. And, you know, I wouldn't even go so far to say, it, 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 you know, like Amazon, for example. I, you know, I, Amazon obviously knows a lot about me in a very specific area of my life. You know, what kind of things I like to shop for. In fact, even, you know, mm-hmm. I can even go into there and improve my recommendations. I can say, well, this is a gift. So, you know, don't, don't associate that with me. And, or this is something I'm just a one-off and don't worry about it. You know, don't, you know, don't use this for my recommendations either. And I, w- I would mm-hmm. go so far to say is I, I like that. I mean, so if, yeah. when, when it's just that, if I could, if I could trust that Amazon is only using this for the purpose of showing me more things that are relevant to me and not selling it to other people, that's what I want them to do. Same thing with Netflix, right? If I'm watching Netflix and I, and I rate, when I first got Netflix, they, they had a web page and you can go to the web page and rate every movie you've ever seen. And I, and I just, for whatever reason, I did a, you know, hundreds of movies because I wanted to improve what they're going to yeah, tell me. Right? I did that too. It's fun. It's fun to have like, I mean, collecting data about yourself in a place that you can see it is mm-hmm. fun. It's yeah. like, there's a reason that rating services are popular and like IMDB is another classic one. It's like people voluntarily mm-hmm. put in hundreds of hours to rating and reviewing movies so they can like build up a profile and show it to other people and get recommendations about what other, like, Oh, what do people like me? tend to life. Yeah. I, I'm curious. I want a good recommendation. In that sense, I think, you know, a lot of the first party stuff when it's especially when it's completely transparent and as long as that's only what they do, I think that's great. But it's obvious it's the third party stuff where things get really mm-hmm. <laughs> as we're gonna see as we get through this interview, really bizarre. And yeah. And uh so all right, so let's dive in. So um you you, you break your article into nice four great little sections that we're gonna kinda go through these in order. So the very first uh, part of your thing, you talk about identifiers, and so at a very basic level, what you what you're going through, and you're saying, here are the ways in which we are identified. Here, you know, it may not be your name, but it may be okay. That's the same person as that guy. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've seen this person before. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk a little bit about about, about that. So how are people um, how are people identified? What are what are what are the ways in which we are uh, IDs are associated with us? Sure. Yeah. Um, so first, a quick step back. Uh, the mm-hmm. reason that we wanted to focus on identifiers kind of front and center is because um, I think when we talk about tracking this, this people who work in the industry, like either privacy advocates or do the industry that's actually doing the tracking understand that like identifiers are kind of the most important thing. And a lot of privacy improvements, like if you're, if you're building a browser and you want to be privacy forward, the first thing you do is try and scrub it of Mm -hmm. identifiers scrub it of ways that trackers can link one page visit to another page visit. Right. Because what's what's important isn't really the data that gets collected at a given point in time. It's whether that data can be linked to mm-hmm. other data from different points in time. So that's why these identifiers are so important. And like everyone, everyone's heard of cookies at this point. I assume, right. I assume everyone in your audience yes, for sure. is familiar with cookies at at some level. And but some people, a lot of people think that like cookies have data, like cookies have your phone number in them or mm-hmm. your browsing history is in the cookies or something like that. Right, right, right. And that's not really true. The cookie is just an identifier that goes along with every request that your browser sends and it allows anyone who's getting those requests to link them all together into a profile or your browsing history or whatever. And from there they can derive other information, but the cookie is just a string of letters and numbers that doesn't change. And it says, this is this person, you've seen them before. Yeah, I was, the, the analogy I always use is like, if let's say I've got I've got a bad memory, or I don't want to try to remember everybody. So what I'll do is, let's say metaphorically, if I could put a post-it note on everybody's forehead that I've met, 
<laughs> you know, I don't even, I don't even know, you know, it's like this, you know, guy I'm in at the store, you know, I don't even have to know his name, right? You know, uh-huh. girl I saw at the subway, you know, it, you know, if I, if I can mm-hmm. put these things on people, oh yeah, I know where you, I saw you on the subway, right? Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> it's, it's for me, but I'm putting the data on you, right? I mean, that's right. Cookies exactly. are kind of that way. That's a really good, I've never heard that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so in this, in this section, we just kind of go through different identifiers that trackers can use, specifically third-party trackers, in different places that you might interact with these trackers. So we start off with the web. And so cookies are obviously the biggest one, still the most popular among trackers. Right. And that's because they're pretty much designed for this purpose. Cookies are a technology that has been around almost as long as the web. Originally, it was for, I think, like the shopping cart problem where you like yeah. Yeah. go to a store and you're like, oh, I want to put these things into my shopping cart. And the store needs to know like, okay, well, who are you? So that next time you come back or when you when you visit a different page, like we remember what things were in your shopping cart. And right. So there was a first party use. The, 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 the main use was for cookies was the first party use. I've already, I've seen this guy. He's already logged in. I don't have to challenge him again. Or he came to my store and put something in the cart and then he left. But when he came back, I could say, oh, I, give me that cookie. Oh yeah. He still had something in his cart. That was a first party thing. And that's what, it's where the third party thing where things got way out Exactly. Of yeah. Yeah. So I don't know at what point third party cookies were discussed or who decided that third-party cookies shouldn't have any restrictions on them um, relative to first-party cookies. But at some point, that decision was made. And for the past 20 years on the web, I guess more now, 25 years, third-party cookies have been the primary way that um, trackers track people. And so the way that works is like cookies are associated with a domain name. So... When you go to Facebook.com and you log in, Facebook drops a cookie in your browser. That's fine. That's so you don't have to log in every single time you Mm -hmm. refresh the page. But it also means that when you go to NewYorkTimes.com or like a game website or an e-commerce site and they have a Facebook ad or a Facebook pixel or something on the page that triggers a request to Facebook, Facebook sees the cookie that it drops in your browser earlier and it goes like, oh, I see that this person who is now off of the Facebook website and visiting some other random site is actually this user who I know and I can identify right. and I can say like, I can now associate that this page visit with their accounts and use it to build up their ad profile. Right. Because like you said, these things are associated with the domain name. And the, w- the way the browser is supposed to work, if it's doing its job correctly, is when it's building a web page, which is really a patchwork quilt of a lot of things. It looks you know, like one thing to you, but under the covers, there are, like you said in the article, there are dozens of other things happening behind there that are coming from other places. And they're only supposed to give the cookies back to the people who originally dropped mm-hmm. them. But if, you know, if there's a, if there's that Facebook like button on the page, well, that's a Facebook image and facebook.com owns that image. And so when you load the facebook.com image, it is allowed to send back the cookie that, you, that was dropped by Facebook when you went to facebook.com in the first place directly, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Yeah, the, what happens is Facebook has this incentive to get all these other sites to put some kind of Facebook resources on them. And that might be that might be a like button. Those are less popular nowadays, but comments are really big. Like every news site has a comment section and Facebook is the most popular comment section now. Ads, Facebook has a third-party ad network where that's called Facebook Audience Network. I think 40,000 domains use third-party <laughs> Facebook ads. And of course, the conversion pixel, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is mm-hmm. probably the most insidious um, because there's no way to know that it's there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but uh, but to set this up, one of the you, you, your article goes through and has these nice little tables and you broke it into three kind of three main sections. You have web identifiers, you have phone identifiers, and you've got like other identifiers in a lot of cases, real world identifiers. And one of the, and you have this table where you kind of walk through, you know, the main identifiers, cookies being the first one under web. And then the columns of these tables were, you know, is it unique or how unique is it? Uh, Is it persistent? Uh, Is it something that's going to last over time? And then how is it available? So, and because those are kind of explain why those are, those are, important properties for any of these IDs. Sure, yeah. So um, when we're talking about the identifiers, there are there are a lot of different things that can be used as identifiers in, in different circumstances. Um, cookies are one. There's your IP address. Um, there's browser fingerprinting, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Mm-hmm. But they're not like each one of these identifiers has has different properties to it. And 
makes it more or less good as an identifier. So like if, if you had an ideal identifier, if, if you were a tracker and you could design an identifier to associate with all the people you're tracking, it would need to have three properties. It would need to be unique so that you know that it points to exactly one person. Mm -hmm. It would need to be uh, persistent so that like you know that it's not going to change over time. Mm-hmm. And it would need to be available. It would need to be something that you can access without, for example, bothering the user, like asking them every time. Like you can, mm-hmm. every time someone visits a site, you can ask them for their name and that that's an identifier, but you don't have automatic access to their name and they're probably not going to give it to you <laughs> if they right, don't know who right. you are. So cookies are really valuable because they check all three of these boxes pretty well. They're like mm-hmm. cookies are generated by the trackers themselves. So the trackers can make sure they're always unique. They're baked into uh, the technology of the web so that they're, they're like meant to be really easy to access. They're automatically sent along with every request that your browser makes. Mm-hmm. So they're very available to the trackers. The trackers don't have to bother the user in order to get them. And they're pretty persistent. This is, this is the one where it kind of breaks down because like you can clear your cookies. You can go into your browser and mm-hmm. delete all your cookies. If you go into incognito mode, um, then your cookies are going to be cleared as soon as you close that window. And sometimes cookies expire, like they they don't last forever. Right. But they usually last long enough that uh, the tracker can put together a pretty good sized profile of the user before the cookie expires. And then there are usually other ways, which we'll also talk about later, where the tracker can link one cookie ID to the new cookie ID if the user actually does clear their cookies and get a new one. So what are the other uh, most common and been around literally forever with the web because it's baked into the technology as an IP address? And to contrast that with cookies, your IP address is kind of normally, the way it normally works, is it's kind of assigned to your house, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, which means that unlike a cookie, like where I'm on my laptop and I'm logged into as me to Amazon and Amazon drops a cookie on me, which is unique to me, the IP address is really shared by every person and every device in my house, including guests, right? Anybody comes over and, and gloms onto my Wi-Fi, to the outside world is going to have the same IP address as me, mm-hmm. right? So one of the more interesting things you talk about in here, uh, and this is a little technical, but I think it's really interesting to note, is the differences between versions uh, of IP addresses. Mm-hmm. There's IPv4 and IPv6. Tell us a little bit about you know, what the differences are, why we have them, and how, and, and how moving, because as we must... Away from my uh, version four to version six is going to have an impact on tracking. Yeah, sure. So this is this <laughs> um, this is a story as old as the internet and possibly older. The IPv4 to IPv6 migration. So back back when DARPA and everyone were designing the original internet, there were not expected to be a whole lot of computers that would be on the internet because there weren't a whole lot of computers in the world. Um, <laughs> and even into the 80s, it wasn't people didn't think like. In the early 80s, people didn't think that everyone was going to have not just one computer, but like several, potentially dozens of different devices that would be connected to the Internet. And so the version of the Internet protocol, IP for short, that Mm -hmm. really became the thing that launched the modern the modern Internet and the modern Web was IP version four. And in IP version four, the designers decided they were, so they knew that every device needed to have a unique identifier, everything that was going to be on the Internet. And so they're like, all right, well, how big should this identifier be? Like, how many different numbers are we mm-hmm. possibly going to need? And the number they came up with was uh, 2 to the 32 or around 4 billion. And they're like, all right, that's that's plenty. Like, there's sure that seems like that a seems lot. like a lot. Right. Like, that's almost as many people as there are in the world. We're never going to have that many devices right. on the Internet. At the same time, that's absurd. Right now, there's like a few hundred. And so, of course, now we know a little better. But the thing about like distributed protocols and, and or open standards like, like IP, TCP IP and everything else on the web is that once they get popular, they're extremely hard to change. It's really hard yeah, to update right. anything. You see this with email too. Like, why is everything else encrypted, but email is still in plain text? It's just because it's too popular to do anything about it. Really. Right, yeah. Um, That's too established. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really entrenched. And so around sometime in the 90s, probably I think it was in the early 90s, when the internet started getting popular and the web was just getting started, people were like, oh man, like this, this internet thing is actually 
it's going places. It's going to it's going <laughs> to change the world as we know it. And yeah, it's very possible that in the near future, everyone is going to have their own device and they're all going to be on the Internet at the same time. And that's a problem if we only have four billion addresses to go around. And so they came up with a new version of the protocol called IPv6. Um, and IPv6 has space for I don't know how many trillions of. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's I, someone once told me that that you could give an IPv6 address to every uh, what was it? Every atom in the planet Earth ten times. <laughs> yeah, that that it's sounds just, about just right. ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. so anyway. The, it, space is not an issue with IPv6, and right. it's got all these other cool features too. So. Because there are so many IPv6 addresses to go around, you can just like reallocate one. You can get a new one every time you connect, basically. And it can be different from every one you've ever had in the past. And every device can have several, if it wants, different IPv6 mm -hmm. addresses. I don't think that's actually how it works. But the, the point is, like, there's no scarcity of addresses in the IPv6 land. And that makes it a lot easier to do privacy-preserving things on top of it, too, like just every time you connect, you're going to get a different IPv6 address. And so, like, it's not linkable to your old your old addresses. What I found was interesting, and you mentioned this in the article, is that, you know, so the, with, because of the, and of course I didn't realize it at this time, but with all the Internet of Things, whatever, all these devices, the, the new scarcity of IP addresses, under the covers, you actually, you lease an IP address. So, you, so when your device says, I need an IP address, and you get one back and it's got a certain amount of time because, you know, we might have to reuse that and reclaim it for something else. And so with IPv6, you don't have to do that. You could have one IPv6 address for every device you have for the rest of their lives. It would never have to mm -hmm. change. But what I thought was really interesting in your article, and I didn't realize this, is that they're baking it into, because there are so many of them, they, they took the privacy angle on that and, and said, just like you said, instead of, well, yeah, I could just give you one for the rest of your life. You never have to change it. But why do that when I could give you one every time? And now I can't track you because it changes all mm -hmm. the time. Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. So anyway, IPv6, better in pretty much every way. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who knows anything about this stuff who would disagree with that. And yet, and yet, um, if you look at Google's, Google does some pretty good monitoring of this. And I think like over 70% of global internet traffic still uses IP version 4. Mm -hmm. So that means like there are significantly more than 4 billion devices at any given time that are trying to communicate with each other over the internet using these 4 billion IPv4 addresses. So anyway, all that is to say, first of all, <laughs> IPv4, the addresses are pretty static. They don't change all that often. If you're on the same network for a few hours or a few days, your IP address is probably going to stay the same because there's no baked-in method to automatically refresh it. But at the same time, on the, on the other hand, uh, they're scarce. They're a scarce resource. And so when you do get an IPv4 address, you lease it from your ISP. Your ISP says, all right, I'm going to give you this one. And like your house can use this for the next 30 days or whatever it is. And after that, you might get a new one. You might keep the same one. Right. But there's, there's no real continuity um, or there's no guarantee of continuity. So right. it's, it's IPv4 addresses are sort of like cookies in that. They are, well, they're pretty unique. They're unique to the household or the router that, that owns the IP address. They're very available. Like you can always see it, the IP address of right. the uh, computer that you're communicating with, but they're not necessarily persistent over long periods of time, um, especially because people can now, the majority of uh, the way people inter interact with the internet is on their phones. And when you're moving around on your phone, you're switching networks, you're switching cell towers, your IP address can actually change quite frequently. So there, there's a lot more there. So <laughs> we could do this for hours. But so let's let's pick one more from the web sure. category that, that's gotten really insidious lately. And you mentioned it earlier. And that's fingerprinting, browser fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> break that one down. Because <laughs> how, how is it that, that, my, that the websites I visit can recognize me based on my browser? Yeah. So this is – so they can't always – uh, I'll start off with saying that. Like, I, I think browser fingerprinting, it's very insidious, it's very scary, but it's not foolproof, and there are ways to prevent it from working. The way it works at sort of a high level is like, it's almost like when you, when you were talking about earlier, you meet someone on the street, and they don't tell you their name, right? Like, you just, mm -hmm. you, but you can look at them, and you're like, all right, I'm, I see this person, they're wearing these clothes, um, they have this kind of face, they have this hairstyle, they have this gait, there, there are all these things that I notice about them. And so that the next time I see them, even if I don't know their name, even if I don't have a 
quote unquote identifier for them, I'll probably recognize them, right? Um, mm -hmm. Assuming they haven't changed their whole appearance and gotten a big makeover. So browser fingerprinting mm -hmm. is kind of like that. When you, when you visit a website, your browser has a bunch of unique characteristics that it shares with the website or that the website can extract from it mm -hmm. just because of the software that you're running, the computer that you're running it on, the version of your browser, the size of your screen, all these different things. And it needs a lot of that. The, the server, servers need a lot of that information in order to just like give you good content most of the time. It's like you don't, right. you don't want to serve a smartphone sized page to a desktop browser. Right. But the flip side of that is that there is usually enough unique information, like there's enough unique things about a particular browser that um, a tracker can say like, okay, I'm gonna observe all these things. I'm gonna observe the screen size, the like pixel depth, the way that the HTML canvas renders a particular image when I draw it, like the general region that this is coming from, the time zone, the, the user agent, what, what browser are they using and what version of the browser. I'm gonna observe all these things and turn that into like a fingerprint, a unique set of traits. And so that the next time I see a browser that looks exactly like this, I am pretty sure that it's the same person. Hmm. And so the thing that's really insidious about this is like other identifiers that we've talked about, like if you wanna clear your cookies, you can clear your cookies. If you want to change your IP address, you can, there are ways that you can just like reset your IP address and get a new one, or you can use a VPN so that your like traffic is merged with a bunch of other people's. You can use Tor, but there's really not a way to change your browser fingerprint. Like there are things you can do, but it's it's pretty hard. And like if you ask me, I, I wouldn't even know how to change my browser fingerprint for sure right now. Um, I don't know what traits about my browser make it unique. And so I don't really know how to go about changing them. Yeah. So anyway, it's this it's just this kind of secretive like backdoor way that um, trackers can create an identifier for your browser in the absence of anything else. And because it's like it's it's kind of a sophisticated thing. It's a subtle thing. Like there's no easy way for the tracker just to say like, oh, here's the identifier. I know this is this person like they have to go out of their way and like um, there's these like scripts online that do some really fancy um kind of hackery in the browser to generate these fingerprints. Because it's so difficult to do, it's usually only used as a fallback if people are already going out of their way to avoid tracking. So like this is this is used by companies that want to track you even though you've cleared your cookies and even though you're using a VPN. And so it's, it often ends up being associated with a lot of the worst actors in the space. <laughs> And yet it's, it's being leaned on more and more because people are taking these steps. And in fact, the, the really kind of the key thing is, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is some of the browsers actually take it upon themselves because they know that, that, that consumers probably, first of all, don't understand it. Second, probably aren't even aware that this is happening. And third, even if they gave them the option to change these things and turn on these privacy things, they'll probably never mm -hmm. do it. It's like, you know, we call it the tyranny of the default, yep. right? But they're starting to actually proactively take these measures like blocking third-party cookies and, uh, and and even blocking some of these fingerprint things. So um, I, I, one of the things that you talk about in the article I'd like to talk about now is, before we move on to mobile, is how prevalent are these things? You know, so we talk about cookies. We talk about uh, fingerprinting and, and uh, you know, following IP addresses. And you mentioned some other ones like TLS state and whatever. How prevalent are these? Because you, you, you talk about some of the stats on the top what, 500 websites. Mm -hmm. to just give us an idea how much these are actually being used today. Sure. Um, cookies are everywhere. Cookies are like the vast majority, like 90 something percent of sites you visit are going to have make connections to third parties. And those third parties, most of them are going to drop cookies. So like the average website has like on the order of a dozen to 20 or so third party cookies, <laughs> unique different third parties that are going to be dropping cookies and trying to trying to get cookies from your browser. Um, IP address tracking, like there's there's one company in particular um, called El Toro that does IP address tracking that I've found. Like in particular, like it, it's a it's a I think a like advertising firm that markets itself as IP based tracking. Like we don't need cookies. We can do it just based on your IP. But that's that's been less popular in the past because cookies are usually better and IP addresses can be fickle. And browser fingerprinting is an interesting one. So we we have our own like little web scanner that looks for uh, it uses privacy badgers kind of engine under the hood and it mm -hmm. does scans of like the top 10,000 sites or so 
um, and just kind of like uh, tallies how many different kinds of each form of tracking we find. So it, we count the number of um, third-party cookies we see. We count the number of third parties doing fingerprinting. And it's still not that common when compared to things like cookies, but it's getting more common. And so I think there was an academic study that sh recently showed something like 30% of the top however many thousand sites on the web um, are doing some form of fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. And like that's, that's way up from a few years ago. Yeah. And a big part of that is probably because browsers like Safari and like Firefox have decided that they're going to actually start restricting third-party cookies by default. I think a lot of people also don't really understand is, well, first of all, Facebook and Google are, are advertising companies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Someone once told me, you know, Google is an advertising company that happens to make a, a search mm -hmm. engine. And and this in this day and age, a lot of other things. And because those, I mean, those two companies alone account for I don't know a, a large plurality uh, of the advertising that happens on the web today. So if one of them were to adopt this technique, it would instantly be that's a really good point. On many yeah. of the most popular websites. Yeah. So I think I will say I think it's unlikely that that actually happens. Um, so fingerprinting is is generally frowned upon even within the ad in industry, <laughs> um, at least when used for behavioral profiling and like Google itself has laid out a plan for reining in fingerprinting. It's unclear how serious they are, but they're at least like talking about yeah. it. Meanwhile, yeah. Google and Facebook and everyone else will continue to like defend to the death their right to drop third party cookies in your browser because their, right. their business model depends on it. And so Google's argument is like, oh, third party cookies are consensual because you can turn them off. So uh -huh. we shouldn't restrict them because that'll make companies do scary things like fingerprinting. And I, I, I mean, I think that whole argument is bunk, but um, <laughs> they are at least trying to uh, give privacy conscious users a way to opt out. Um, I think that like the biggest companies believe that as long as there is some way technically to opt out of the tracking, it's okay to do it by default on the vast majority of people. And like you said, the tyranny of the defaults mean that as long as the default is that you will be tracked by these cookies, like 90 something percent of people aren't going to do anything about that. And Google right. can still make it, can keep making almost as much money as they are now. But yeah, fingerprinting is like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be declared just completely illegal in uh, Europe under GDPR. Uh, <laughs> We've written uh, a blog post about that. And it's like when you describe it to like lawmakers, they're like, what? <laughs> How? Right. And it's a lot harder to make that seem less scary. Uh, and so right. I think it's a lot more prone to regulation. And I think the biggest companies are scared of that. They want it. They want to keep doing this, quote unquote, consensual tracking with cookies as long as they can. Well, and it, you mentioned this in the article too, and I think the other important thing to realize with things like Google and Facebook is they're so big and they're so incumbent and they've got so many other ways to track mm -hmm. you. They don't need that. Yeah, they don't need it. You know, if you're using the Chrome browser, they don't need to worry yeah, about exactly, that stuff. You're exactly. using their browser, right? You know, so, you know, and, and you went, you mentioned one of the quotes in the article I brought out was, the unsettling truth is that although Facebook doesn't listen to you through your phone, that's just because it doesn't need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's move on. Let's let's go on to mo uh, phone identifier. So uh, this is something that, that you know we all have smartphones now. We all have a supercomputer that we carry in our <laughs> pockets that is connected to the internet twenty four seven, and you know, and Wi Fi and Bluetooth, and it's got all these various connection technologies. Um, so uh, it you know it's George Orwell never you know figured that we would actually you know take that device with us voluntarily everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So it, talk to us a little bit about what are some of the the, the mobile identifiers. How how are we identified from our, from our mobile devices? Sure. Um, so first of all, mobile phones are just computers. They interact with other computers on the internet in basically the same way. Like they still use they still have IP addresses. They still there's a browser on your phone, and so when you're in your browser on your phone. It's pretty much exactly the same as when you're in your browser on your laptop or desktop. But what's different about mobile phones is like the app ecosystem and the fact that the, the companies that make these phone operating systems have a lot tighter control over like mm. what you're allowed to do in your phone and what apps you're allowed to do. As a result, it's generally like less of a cybersecurity risk to install random software on your phone because like Google or Apple or whoever has vetted it to make sure that um, they can't just go through and wreck your whole system and delete all your files or whatever it is. But at the same time, 
both Google and Apple, even privacy conscious Apple, have baked in ways for third party advertisers to track and profile you in the apps on your phone. Mm. So there's there's this thing called the I think it's called the IDFA, the ID for advertisers on uh, Safari and just the advertising ID or something, or sorry, on, on iOS and on Android, it's called the advertising ID or something like that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's basically just a cookie. It's this unique string of letters and numbers that the operating system on your phone generates automatically. And every app on your phone can access it. And every app on your phone probably has, has dozens of like third parties that are allowed to swim around in the app and do whatever they want. And they can all access that identifier too. So it's just as good as a cookie. It's not specific to a certain domain. So like when one tracker on your phone accesses the ad ID and another tracker accesses the ad ID, they're going to get the same number. And then they, that makes it a lot easier for them to share data about you in the background. There's no way to, there's no permission for the ad ID. Every, every app can access it by default. There's no way to tell them to stop access, accessing it. And on Android, you can't even delete it. <laughs> on on iOS, you can go in and say like, all right, I want to set my ad ID to a string of zeros. I mean, no one knows that this exists, <laughs> so, so people don't generally do that. Yeah, I didn't know it exists until I read the article. I mean, there's a button for limit ad tracking, oh, but this is beyond God, that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, that's that's on Android. There's this. Um, you can go in deep into the Google settings, into your ad settings, and say, I want to limit ad tracking. And it says, like, oh, this will like limit what advertisers can track about you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, cool. So you click that. And I had known about that button for a while, and I always turned it on. I was like, oh, nice. Like, at least there's a way to opt out, even though I still don't like it. Like, I can clear my cookies or whatever. And then I started doing some digging um, for a post I was writing uh, a few months ago and realized that switch doesn't actually clear anything. What it does <laughs> is it sets a little flag in the operating system that oh, says, no. I don't want to be tracked. And so Do not track. advertisers are asked by Google to go and before they start tracking you to oh, ask my. your operating system whether you want to be tracked. And if not, they're not supposed to track you. But it doesn't oh. change anything about the ad ID and they can still access the ad wow. ID. And Someone did a study last February where they went through and like look, turned off ad tracking and like looked at all the apps that were still sharing their ad ID. And unsurprisingly, it was <laughs> tens of thousands. Like no right. one, I'm sure some apps respect it, but this is like, yeah, this is a tissue paper shield sure, for privacy. Wow. And anyway, so I. So what about iOS? iOS, about iOS to their credit, iOS has a real opt out. You can go in and when you decide that you don't want to be tracked anymore, you can set your ad ID to a string of zeros, which makes it effectively useless. So like there's a real technical protection there, not just a, a policy protection. How do you do that? Is it easy enough to explain now or should I refer somebody oh, yeah, to a Yeah, see, I don't know off the top of my head. I think we <laughs> linked to it in the white paper. Okay. Um, I will find that and I will put that. But yeah, it's it's a couple layers deep in the in the settings, but it's not too hard to find if you know what you're looking for. It's just that most people don't know what to look for. Like people people have this idea of cookies, but I don't like even I didn't know about the ad identifier. Like I was a pretty privacy conscious person before I started working at EFF, but I didn't know this was a thing until like I read about it through like the kind of privacy wonk community blogs that I read mm. and. It's I think it's like the biggest open secret in in um, like privacy right now. It's just that there's both major operating systems, even Apple, have this identifier baked into the operating system that only exists to allow third party tracking. That's the only reason it's there. Yeah, I, I, I find that hard to believe, too. And even it, it just irks me even on Apple that I want to go with the, your option is to limit ad tracking. You can't say no ad tracking. <laughs> yeah, you can right, only limit right. that, you know, for as privacy conscious as Apple is, that really sticks on my craw. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, the interesting thing is, that, you know, on your phone, you've got actually there are several Ident- unique identifiers that they could be using that are that are blocked for privacy reasons. Right. Like you've got this the IMSI, the IMEI, which are these you know acronyms for these identifiers for your hardware or for your you know your cellular account mm-hmm. and your phone number itself. These are all unique things, but that ironically those aren't those are, yeah, blocked, those are blocked for privacy, for privacy reasons. reasons. They're generally yeah. not available right. to these apps, and then they came up with something that is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. so. yeah. and if you go and um, read like Android's developer docs, you'll see like Google is saying like. Don't use this because you shouldn't because it's invasive. Here's what you should use. 
And it's like, <laughs> you see this again and again with Google. Like Google is, they do, they have a good security team. Like they are pretty good at making sure that developers who are developing for the web in Chrome or developing apps for Android can only do the things that Google wants them to do. Google wants them to track people. They just want them to track people <laughs> exactly like according to Google's tracking guidelines. And so it's, yeah. Privacy preserving right. is the wrong, the wrong word for it. All right. There's, there's one more thing that's kind of interesting about phones in, in particular, and that is the use of a, of, a, of a Mac address. Talk to us about what that is and, and how that is used. To sure. Yeah. This one's, this one's really fun. Um, so a Mac address is, uh, so it's, it, it's another like low-level protocol-level thing that's been around since forever. MAC stands for Media Access Control, um, and it's this identifier that's used in like low-level network protocols to establish a connection between like your phone and the Wi-Fi router in your area, or your phone and another phone over Bluetooth. So it's like it doesn't get transmitted over the internet itself. It's used to set up the connection that gets you onto the internet, if that makes sense. Like when you visit a website, yep, yep. the website can't see your MAC address. Your router can see your right, MAC okay. address. But part of the way that it works, this is another protocol that was designed a long time ago before people thought that much about privacy on the internet, is when your phone or your laptop is like looking around for uh, Wi-Fi to connect to, the way it does that is it sends out what are called probe requests. And so it's just a little wi wireless ping, like a little radio signal that says like, Hi, I'm a device in your area. I would like to know what Wi-Fi networks are set up here. And attached to that signal, attached to that little message is the MAC address of the device. It's saying like, hi, I'm device FFAB123. Please tell me if there are any uh, Wi-Fi hotspots in this area. Or please tell me if this Wi-Fi hotspot in is in this area. And it'll ask for a specific name. Um, and so whenever you have Wi-Fi turned on on your phone, as you're walking around the world, it's just like sending out these probe requests every few seconds. And that's how you like when you open up your the Wi-Fi settings and you see like the list of networks. Um, that's how that got there. It's like it's communicating with the, the hotspots in your area. And in doing so, it's sharing this MAC address. So the MAC address is a unique hardware identifier. It's like baked into the hardware of your device um, at a really low level. And the IEEE or someone, one, one of the standards organizations like dictates which devices get which MAC addresses to make sure that they're not duplicated. Um, so every, right. every device that is capable of connecting to the internet using wireless has a MAC address that is unique to it and only it. So that's a great tracking identifier, right? right? It's, sure. it's unique. It's pretty available to anyone, anyone nearby. And it's really persistent. It never changes. The thing that's kind of a ray of hope in all this is that you can, it's very possible to change the MAC address that your device presents. So even though your device is assigned a unique one that never changes, you can go into software and say like, actually, I want you to tell the rest of the world that this is my MAC address now and just make one up. Um, and this is called MAC spoofing because it's often used to like mm. have one device pretend to be another device, but it can also be used for privacy reasons. And so Modern mobile operating systems actually do this. So like the, the latest versions of Android and iOS both spoof MAC addresses by default when they're doing when they're making this connection. But older versions of Android don't. And mm. so like up until probably two or three years ago, this was pretty much everyone who had a smartphone was vulnerable to being tracked as they walked around the world by random Wi-Fi hotspots that they never knew were there. So like, yeah, as, as you're walking around, your phone's in your pocket, sending out these pings. And like anyone, uh, the Starbucks Wi-Fi can be like, oh, there's this MAC address. And then the next time you walk past the Starbucks, it's like, oh, there's this MAC address again. I know that they mm -hmm. walked from here to here in this time. And given enough devices around a city or a country, these, these actors who control these hotspots can put together really detailed profiles of the way people move around. That's yeah, that gets really spooky really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, yeah, um, like I said, this, there's things are moving in the right direction here. Both, um, I guess, Google and Apple decided that they don't actually want to use this information for tracking, or it's it's to their benefit uh, to protect privacy in this respect. So, like, 
yeah, it's it's this is getting harder to do for the trackers. But like if you there's this whole long tail of like IoT devices and random internet connected devices that don't run iOS or Android that still broadcast the hardware. Sure. Maps. Yeah. It's like I just just to test this, I took out my Kindle. I have the newest version of right. Kindle yeah. running the newest version of the software. And I like you can do this on your laptop. You can put it into what's called monitor mode and listen for uh, probe requests in your area. And you'll see the MAC addresses like stream by. And it's like, yep, that's the same one every single time. I can anytime I carry my Kindle with me, someone could be creating a, a profile of my movement around the world. Yeah. Wow. All right. So the category three, the third one was more like a uh, real world identifiers. And uh, this is something that I think it's. It seems like it's it's coming along uh, more recently. Like for instance, we're talking about you know facial recognition or license plate readers. So let's talk about some of the things in the physical world that are kind of like MAC addresses, <laughs> except you know in real life, you know, or or, or or not virtual, but they're like physical. Tell, how are we tracked in real life? What are those identifiers? Yeah. So this is just um, these are things that people can see uh, generally. These are there are cameras set up all over the place. Some of them are owned by the government or the police, some of them are owned by private companies. And there are a lot of different ways that cameras using like machine vision now can extract, can take an image or video feed and extract unique identifiers about the people or cars or devices in that feed. So one of the more popular things, sort of a, a, the lower tech version of this is called uh, automatic license plate reading. Mm -hmm. This is something police have been using for a while now and it's cameras that can just like they just look at an image they look at a video feed and they can pick out all the license plates that drive by and so police departments will set these up at like speed traps or on like the the stoplight cameras and stuff and they'll just because they already have a video feed and they're just like all right well let's just right. like pull out all the license plates that drive by and then they can create these like maps of where where different cars go over time and there are actually a lot of private companies that do this um, on behalf of right, police. Yeah. There's one called Vigilant Solutions that my colleague Dave Moss has done a ton of really great work on, filed a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests to, to figure mm -hmm. out what they're doing. They're a private company that leases equipment and software to police stations around the country. And so Vigilant sets up the tech for the cops and they like let the cops have access to the, the license mm -hmm. plate data that... Um, that they collect, but Vigilant keeps like the rights to all of that data. So Vigilant <laughs> Solutions has like millions of cameras set up around the country and they know the movements of millions of people, many of whom have never been accused or suspected of any kind of crime. Right. Um, and right. they, once they have that data, they can sell it to other law enforcement agencies or to ICE, which they have. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing, like very few people realize it's happening. They're also... Private companies, I think the, the parent company of Vigilant, I forget what it's called, um, owns another similar ALPR company that works for bounty hunters. It's, it, it's like the private sector version of the same thing. And so like bounty hunters and repo men and people who uh, have a private business interest in tracking down other humans can set up cameras and share data about the license plates that they see and where they see them. There's even a new startup that I saw that is doing this as like a neighborhood watch tech <laughs> where it's like, oh, like, are you scared of bad people doing bad things in your neighborhood? Set up these license plate readers and like share data with all the other people who have our license plate readers set up. And you can like take down notes about the car that you saw. And that sounds like the next addition to the Amazon ring. Exactly. Doorbell. It's yeah, it's exactly I'm because I'm sure they would never dream of sharing that data with law enforcement <laughs> or um targeting already vulnerable populations with, uh, right. with this kind of surveillance. Anyway, so that's, that's ALPRs. Um, that's pretty low tech. It's like relatively easy to, to pull out the license plate number. Um, but sort of the more insidious next generation of that is, is facial recognition cameras. So this is like mm. facial recognition has come a long way in the past five years or so using, using some pretty cool, well, <laughs> pretty, pretty advanced machine learning <laughs> technology. Right. And so, um, if you just have a video feed of people walking down the street, uh, cameras or computers can pull out like and identify uh, which face belongs to which person with frightening accuracy, like into the 99.9%. .9 there's, there's, there are issues with bias in these algorithms. Um, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, this has been really well reported on by some some great people that like these these are really good at detecting uh, or identifying white men. They're not so good at identifying <laughs> right. um, people of color or or women or anyone who has sort of a non-white male looking face. And right. so this is obviously really problematic when it's used by law enforcement to identify suspects or what have you. And it leads to a lot of false positives. Um, but I think and I think that's something we should be really wary of. But at the same time, this technology is going to get better and yeah, there will yeah. be a time in the future when they can identify everyone with almost perfect accuracy. And we shouldn't be like, oh, well, then that's fine. <laughs> yeah, let's just set up cameras <laughs> in every corner and see where everyone is moving all the time in that case. Right. But yeah, that is that is kind of the direction things are moving. And so stores have set these up to monitor for, I guess, like suspected theft and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a startup that's doing... They have this product. Oh my god! It's a, it's like a video screen. So you know when you walk into like a Walgreens and mm-hmm. you go, you're like, oh, I want to buy a drink, and you go over to the fridge, and there's this glass plate between you and the drinks, and you can see through it, and you can see what drinks are behind it. Isn't that inconvenient? Wouldn't you rather have instead of a glass plate a big LCD screen that shows you ads for the things that are behind the glass? <laughs> well, that's what this company thinks. And so there's all this product. It's like a fridge door that's like a big TV screen. And on top of it is a camera that monitors the people who stand in front of the fridge door. And it can pull out information about your face, tie that to a profile of what it knows about you um, and the things that you've bought in the past and things that you like, and then decide on the fly what to advertise to you on that screen. (laughs) That's straight out of Minority Report, if you've ever seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's walking around and they're scanning it. In the, in the movie, it's his irises, but the same kind of concept, right? They, as he's walking around, he walks into a store and it's like, welcome, so-and-so. How'd you like those pants you bought last week? Or Because it remembers yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so this is, um, I think Walgreens did a pilot program implementing this kind of technology um, earlier this year. And I, I didn't get the chance to go into a store that actually had this running, unfortunately, but... I really hope the pilot was not a success. <laughs> right. But regardless, there are people who see an opportunity for targeted ads in the physical world and they think there's money to be made and so they're going to try and make it happen. One of the really creepy things that that I've read recently and it, just to like take this to the next level and this is this is happening is is it's not just about even recognizing the face now. Now it's actually interpreting your mood. Like looking for smiles, looking for frowns, looking for confusion, oh boy. you know, facial expressions. And, uh, and, and so first there's that. And then there's also eye tracking, like how, where are you looking? How long did you look there? What caught your attention? And one of the reasons, one of the ways I heard this was being used and it's just so creepy is in, um, childcare situations where it's kind of like, <laughs> I can see that as if it's my dog at, at the kennel where I might want to look in on the dog cam and see how my dog's mm-hmm. doing. But you could do this at, at these childcare centers where you could... It will notify you when your child is in view. So you'll get a notifications. And then it it can also try to see if your kid's not having a good day. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, geez. Okay. So we've we've spent a lot of time on the identifiers and and, and how we're identified. (laughs) And we've got so much more to cover. But so like the next phase of this and where it gets uh, is, I think, even really creepy is this. We've talked about how how we get identified. But now... How is all this stuff being actually collected and used in the background? So let, let's get into, you know, we've talked about some of the tracking techniques, but, you know, how how is this really being aggregated? Like, what is the business behind this? So I know that, I know that seems like a lot of information, but again, the, what I want you to take away from that is all the different ways that we are tagged and, and recognized as we move around the web, as we use our cell phones, as we walk around the physical world, um, and how, well, actually, we're going to find out more uh, a little bit in the second part of the interview, how the, a lot of these things are tied together to create profiles on us. What's really going to, I think, blow your mind, though, is you've listened to my podcast for a while, probably, and you know, and the fact that we're being tracked is probably not news to you. But what we're going to talk about in the, in the second part of this episode is the amazing, huge economy behind all of this tracking. And it's not just Google. It's not just Facebook. There are 
literally thousands of data brokers and other companies whose sole purpose is to gather this information, correlate this data on you and sell it to others. And the fact that there are basically no regulations about this in the United States means it's a total free-for-all. And so it's just gone nuts. So anyway, we're going to talk about that in part two, so you'll definitely want to uh, check that out. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Go to podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, you can check them all out there, and there's links to the various ways to subscribe right on the page if you want to go to it from there. Or, you know, what if you've already got your favorite podcast app, you know, then just, you know, search for it there and subscribe there. I did want to say that I looked up uh, that technique for setting your Apple ID to zeros. From what I read, I just the, 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 the link from the article, from the One Way Mirror article, which both of these will be linked to in the show notes, it, it apparently all you really need to do is set your uh, set that setting to limit ad tracking. Uh, on your iOS device. And apparently under the covers, what that does, that sets your, your tracking ID to all zeros, which basically makes, as he said, basically makes it useless. It's not unique anymore. If I find out differently, I will let you know. I will let you know next week, but I, I believe that is all you need to do. All right. So a little more house, a little more housekeeping. Uh, be sure if you haven't already, it's getting, getting kind of late. There's not many shopping days left. Uh, not many online shopping days left to get stuff delivered in time. Uh, check out my best and worst gift guide for 2019. That's on the firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com website. I'll try to throw a link to that in the show notes as well. And of course, you might want to consider my book as a, as a gift to give, so especially if you're giving someone some technology. Uh, this would be a great companion for that. You can find that, of course, on Amazon.com or go to the A-Press website or I think just about anywhere, really, Barnes & Noble, whatever you, wherever you like to buy your books. And hopefully even it's a brick-and-mortar stores too, but at least you can get it online for sure. So again, next week, we'll have the second part of the interview with Bennett Cyphers. Uh, and then after that, uh, that'll be the that'll be the one right before Christmas. So the one after that will be basically the one before New Year's. And we'll do a, I'll do a little New Year's wrap-up show and maybe we'll do... Uh, Maybe we'll do something like New Year's resolutions or something, a uh, little more tips of the week than normal, and we'll just kick off 2020 uh, trying to make you safer and more secure. All right, everybody, I hope you're having a safe holiday season so far, and uh, I will see you here next week, same bat time, same bat channel. And as always, until then, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>